0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonna, and I'm sitting here with Myra and Leanne. Hey, guys. Hi. And we just want to take a few minutes and talk through some of the things that we feel have stood out so far in the season. So, Leanne, Myra, what stood out to you?
1: Well, you know, what stood out to me was a Walter story. Um, You know, the fact that he was incarcerated, and then while he was incarcerated, he got a degree, because it was important, you know, important for him to move forward in his life. And he gets out and he's struggling because people don't want to give him a second chance, which seems awful. You know, Yeah, he
0: can't find housing because no one will rent to him. Exactly. He can't find a job. No one will hire him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's tough to affirm who you are when nobody will give you a chance. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I I think the way David, who's in episode two, how he... Treats his own work to move forward and progresses really to to isolate himself and to be very picky about who's around him because a lot of people don't help him move forward. And he came to some recognition about that at some point and said, hey, my community, I'm going to choose who that is. They're going to be a certain type of Positive people, and otherwise, really don't want to be around other people. Right. Yeah, he
0: really makes that point that your environment matters. Who you're surrounded by can really matter. And you know, if it's if you're in surrounded by your old things that reinforce your old patterns, you might just stay in that cycle of homelessness or use or whatever it may be. People, places, and
1: things. Yes. Yes.
0: I thought that was really compelling too. And I think, you know, bringing it to our last episode with Betsy you know, the start of her story is her leaving home at 16 and really not having that support system or family nearby, right? And she then gets into drug use really to fit in. And then, you know, as she's on her journey, she really is holding this tension of living a healthy life, holding down professional jobs and trying to sort of move forward and regain stability And also still struggling with that very real addiction. And it it just makes it feel like it's not a choice. You know, the addiction draws her in.
1: It's like she's juggling. She's juggling it all together.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And when addiction isn't your choice and you don't have any tools, you, you know, you fall back. I mean, it happens all the time to all sorts of people.
1: Yes, yes. And it's, it's normal for it to happen until you start feeling comfortable with how to move forward and finding the right tools. Yeah which, you know, Betsy does. She really
0: gets that support, builds her toolkit, and now here she is working to help other folks who are in similar situations, which is really, you know, I think beautiful. It's it's wonderful. Of, yeah.
2: You know, a thread that I think we heard in these last interviews, and I think we're going to continue to hear in our stories going forward, is this, this stigma that is attached to being unhoused. Betsy spoke eloquently about the experience of having a paramedic look at her, look at her in her eyes, and she could read that that paramedic did not think she was worth saving. And David talked about people walking past you on the street like you were part of the pavement. You know, it f- it feels very real, and I think, you know, it 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 represents a bigger a bigger barrier we have of of how do we how do we extend compassion in these situations that make people feel really uncomfortable right like just knowing that as you're passing down the street you're walking
1: to the grocery store and and you're just ignoring that person like they have no face they have no real
3: worth
0: like they're not human almost right right and i think one thing that we care a lot about is this Concept of dignity, which we kind of say is the sense that your life is worth living, and what would happen if we all treated each other with that dignity?
1: Right, and treating everybody the same on the same level, so that we all feel like we're all the same. I would, I think that would be something to think about. Like, how would you treat a next person passing by? Do they are they like me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I also want to point out though that even
0: within these stories. It's really impossible to generalize what each individual needed and how they move towards stability. There are nuances to each of the stories and so much complexity. And I think we're going to hear more of those complexities as we move
2: through the season. I'm wondering about other situations that prompt people to become unhoused. You know, think about job loss that stems from a health or medical issue. Or domestic violence, like we heard in Jesse's story from episode eight in season one. Or, you know, simply working but not making enough to be able to pay first and last month's rent and a security deposit. What about being over the age of 65 and not being able to afford the apartment or house that you've lived in for years just because of rising rents? And trauma, trauma is a an enormous piece of that just manifests itself, you know, with an ugly head all the time. Yes, because trauma to me is like something that everybody experiences.
1: But we don't see it from the lens of people that are living through daily trauma. That's what these stories have in common.
0: I think that's such an important point. And I think we're obviously going to dig in in this episode with Juan, who's an expert on trauma and really understand the roots of that and how it manifests itself and you know some of these behaviors we see will really recognize as self protection self-defense self soothing mechanisms um, to really get through that trauma especially when you don't have the other support you
1: need to work through it the rest of these episodes some of these questions that we've asked will be answered and you can hear from some of our other neighbors and then you know you'll learn more about what's going on in their lives
0: Yeah, I think it's so important to keep listening to these stories that really show us we are all human. And there are different facets to each of our stories that get us to where we are and where we're going. That's right.
3: Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be.
0: All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent.
1: There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears.
4: We're looking at a human being, and there's life story. 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 story.
3: story. 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 Story.
1: Connection to the people we don't know that live
3: near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast. In this episode, we will hear from Juan a licensed professional counselor and trauma specialist working with the Caring for Denver Foundation. Juan gives us insight into what causes trauma, how it shows up in behaviors and physical health, and the link between trauma and homelessness. This episode is being brought to you by Mead & Hunt, a national full-service architectural and engineering firm with an office in Denver. Before we start, we want to let you know that we went through an informed consent process with everyone we interviewed. And before airing each of these episodes, we sent the recording to the interviewees to make sure that they were still comfortable with us sharing their story.
2: Hello, this is Leanne, and today I'm with Juan Escobedo. Um, Juan, you want to tell us a little something about yourself?
4: Yes, I'm a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Colorado, had um, decades of practice and direct service to at an outpatient level with a variety of mental health services. My, own, my other head is also I'm a program officer for the for Denver Foundation and making sure that we're funding programs that are touching both mental health and substance misuse.
2: When we talk or think about people who are unhoused, many of us go to Um, the trauma that either we see in those folks in the streets, or when we just imagine being unhoused. So help us understand what causes trauma and how trauma manifests itself in behaviors and, you know, physically in the body.
4: Yeah, definitely. So at the core, when we're trying to define and understand trauma, we can understand that it's an experience that has been deeply distressing and or disturbing, right? It hits you at your core. And this experience sends the mind, body, and heart into survival mode. And it can manifest in shutting down or disassociating, like when people say they're freezing in agitation when people are fighting, or avoidance when there's flight happening, right? So you got the stress response, you know, freeze, fight, flight all intertwined in that experience. And in this experience, it it deeply ingrains itself in memory. There are so much details that the mind captures from this experience that associates it strongly with emotions as well. So strong emotional reaction, strong memory, and that fight-flight response all intertwined in this experience. From there... There's things that happen in the brain. So when we are triggered or things that we notice in our environment make us remember that same experience, it gets us stuck in that. So it, in that kind of loop that we're stuck in, it relives all those experiences again, all those details, all those emotions. And that's a little bit about how trauma kind of is we define it, understand it. And in the body, it, it also kind of saves itself in the body with the same reactions, you know, heart palpitation, sweats, tension, you know, high heart rate, and so on. So in all levels of the psyche, emotions in the body, trauma is stored deeply from, you know, a disturbing and or distressing experience.
2: Given how much the body remembers trauma, can you give us some description or explanation of cultural or ancestral trauma?
4: Yeah, definitely. And genetics have been very clear about that tie and that association that there's trauma passed down from generation to generation. And with that also comes the association of survival, surviving, you know that trauma. The basic message of trauma, And I don't know if we all, many of us are very familiar with Maslow's hierarchy or needs. The very foundation and base of a human being is a sense of safety, belonging, feeling loved, you know, wanton and so on. So that gets shattered in a way, right? And and these intergenerational trauma happenings and experiences. So from that trauma, the message is very clear. You are unwelcome. You do not belong and it is unsafe to be in this world. So in terms of like that intergenerational thing, that's kinda what we're seeing. And that's not only the genetics, but it's also the beliefs and assumptions about the world that impact that very basic level of human human needs.
2: What disparities have you seen in underrepresented groups around mental health and trauma?
4: So essentially what it boils down to is some of the things that we heard through the foundation in terms of there are lack of access and right fit of services in places and with people that are trusted. And that is compounded by outcomes as well. And when we talk about outcomes, we're talking about individual receiving the same services that everybody gets have different effects of those services, right? Right. So when we look at disparities, you know, two people's experience receiving the same services can lead to very different results. Everybody's trauma history manifests differently. And everybody's recovery journey is very different as well. And part of the disparities is that put, you know, all those challenges and barriers in play and compound that with the trauma, right? Compound that with, intergenerational trauma and then compound that with the trauma from being housed, you know, not getting your needs met. And so that starts painting a picture of the barriers and starts painting a picture of, you know, that there's no way to generalize services because everybody's story and picture is very different.
2: That seems to have a lot of implications on public policy on how to address our issues around homelessness. There seems to be um, a wish to make it standard because there are a lot of people who need a lot of services. What would you advise public policymakers on how to provide services with the most effectiveness for the clients?
4: The biggest piece is that the the core of a lot of the challenges in homelessness is economic mobility, and then everything else just kind of intertwines and interconnects. Once we understand that, it's a lot more complex. And when you add on the trauma, the mental health, the social issues, the intergenerational piece, then the landscape looks different there's this desperation of just, you know, find a solution, somebody please. And so you got many leaders coming out to say, here's the solution, here's the solution, here's the solution. Whatever we're thinking of in terms of solution, you know, I think we got to keep in mind that it needs to be just as comprehensive, as complex as the problem. There's a history of us saying, well, they just need a house. There's many, many shelters. But that wasn't the question. That wasn't solving for right We know that in the shelters there's a lot of trauma it's unsafe right We know that there's a lot of stealing happening there's bad bugs and so on and so there's safe even safety is not something that's you know provided and then there's rules and structures that again make it more and more difficult and depending on the individual right there's still triggers of trauma there's still you know substance misuse they still just surviving being in survival mode. So whatever policy that we're trying to set forth, I, I really just encourage that. Let there be solutions that are adaptable, flexible, and more dynamic than just cookie-cutter approaches. Through my conversations with a lot of homeless serving organizations and, and peers and service providers, at the core is just access to those basic economic resources. And when somebody doesn't receive that and or doesn't get those, again, fight, flight, or freeze, right? Either hopelessness kicks in and there's got to be ways to cope with that. Either, you know, there's agitation, frustration in which, again, not addressed leads to depression and sadness or avoidance, right?
2: I think key is the complexity of the problem needs to be addressed or the solution needs to be just as complex and nuanced as the problem is.
4: Yes. As well as asking the right question. So when we are triggered and we're going back through all that detailed memories from that entrenched trauma that we have, and we're trying to impose what we learned how to survive in that experience into the now, that can be very telling of what that individual is going through. Right? so if somebody's being asked that here connect with this case manager for help and the person just avoids that right that's indication of hey there's no trust I don't feel safe and I, even though we say this is a trusting person and our service again the reliance shouldn't be on the person or service but more so the understanding of how that trauma is being triggered at that moment and i keep hearing all this rhetoric around uh the unhoused and trauma and i feel like there's no really intersection space where we're talking about both simultaneously and we do this a lot because you know we like to simplify things just put them into buckets so that can make even more sense and clarity but the reality is that it's not as clear right and we got to be okay being in a space where we can see all the wires coming together and start taking a deeper look into those nodes we need to have those conversations because if nothing is trauma-informed then nobody really gets help at the end of the day
0: one what would it look like to dig into those nodes and to look at that intersectionality and the complexity within trauma and houselessness
4: at the core it would challenge the service provider and or people that are helping to take a deeper look into themselves and saying, is this really the most appropriate way to provide service? Am I really the face to be here, right? Do I really have those skills to hone in and how to engage, you know, individuals with high complex trauma? And I didn't talk about complex trauma yet. That's another piece that I would love to dive into, but when it comes down to those notes, it it, it just provides a, a deeper, more meaningful self-reflection for individuals pro- providing services that challenges them not to say that it's the person who needs help their fault for not engaging, but what am I doing wrong and or ineffective that is pushing these these individuals away?
2: When we think about trauma, and we've interviewed. A number of people who've explored their journeys, described their journeys to us, they talk about the amount of time it takes them to heal. Could you give us a a little perspective on just the time it takes to heal?
4: In general, you know, they say that it takes about 17 years since the beginning of symptoms for somebody to actually get help to start asking for help, right? So time is a big component of healing. Though readiness is also another biggest component, right? We can give somebody all the time that they need and we see individuals take lifetimes, right? To trying to figure this out, but still can't. And that's okay. Everybody's journey is very different. The readiness component is even more important because once you're ready, then there's a motivation to seek whatever resources to get on track or to heal and or move on and or incorporate the trauma as part of your life story that results in, you know, a surviving individual that have been empowered and, you know, spearheading what's best for them in in the future. So, yes, time is very, very important.
0: So if someone doesn't have time to heal or isn't in a healing process, how might that affect their ability to go about meeting their basic needs or navigating the system to meet their needs?
4: When we look at, at, at trauma, and I mentioned earlier about ways how to survive it, right? There's ways that individuals learn how to, you know, simply survive that experience. And they do this through coping skills. It could be both healthy or unhealthy. Some of these coping skills can be substances right? And that's just to kind of survive, just to get by and make sure that the trauma is at bay. And when that happens, again, the road to kind of substance misuse challenges can be very, very rocky one, where, you know, the substance tends to take precedence over basic needs, right? Employment, housing, food, family relationships, and so on and so on. Another example is that you know, there's some policies that are out there in place, right? It's very difficult to gain housing once there's a felony in your record. It's very difficult to get housing when there's an eviction history in your record and so on, right? So there's environmental things that are also at play that prohibits somebody to get their basic needs met. And we can look a little bit deeper into abuse and neglected children. All their needs are getting met, right? Hypothetically speaking, if there's a house, there's a roof over their head, there's food on a table, they have access to a bathroom and water. But on a daily basis, you know, the abuse is happening. Now, let's really look into that situation. Their safety has been impinged upon, and the only thing that provides any sense of hope is the outdoors or being outside, right? Or avoiding the situation in total. So those are just kind of some examples, but we can sit here for hours and hours and hours to processing all the different types of ways of coping with the trauma. But each person's survival mechanism is just as unique as their personality and how they were brought up into this world.
3: We'll be right back. All companies want to be successful, but it's how they define success that makes all the difference. Companies that seek to perform financially and have a positive impact on people and the planet are a critical part of what it will take to build an elevated Denver. For key lessons in how to do this from best-in-class companies, including a surprising approach to prevent homelessness, visit stakeholderbusiness.com. And now back to the show.
2: Can you speak a little bit about the link between trauma and trust or lack of trust in other people in institutions that you know those of us you know would say well you know there's there's an opportunity over there why don't the unhoused go seek that opportunity in that space, from that building, from those people?
4: It's a very good question. There's a concept called uh, rugged individualism in this, this country, right? Everybody needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Responsibility is placed on the individual, not the collective. We look at other countries. It's the complete opposite. And as a result, there's other countries that you know, that those unhoused challenges are far less, right? So philosophically speaking, there's a set of assumptions that I think we need to reflect on. Is this really the best way to approach individuals that are suffering by self-blaming them, right? Because I think that there's, a, uh, there's an error there, A, that is not conducive for the people that are suffering, but more so... It relieves the responsibility of the person that's blaming. And hence, if they become an other, then it is a lot easier to cope with that responsibility because it's no longer the individuals um, that's saying these things anymore, right? It's placed on the individual that's suffering instead. So really challenging kind of those cultural beliefs is going to be the first step because I think if we're really going to make change, we also have to take responsibility for everybody's suffering. And that is a culture shift that we haven't embarked in at all from from the beginning of time. The other piece is, you know, substance misuse and trauma are highly, highly correlated, right? And there's a piece called co-occurring where both of them are happening at the same time. And we know that on the average, there are 22 million people in the U.S. that are struggling with substances. And there's a three quarters of those individuals have been using substances as a way to cope with, you know, the trauma. As a way to, you know, survive, you know, make sure that that trauma monster has been lightened a little bit and or, you know, volume has been decreased significantly so that we can kind of continue our day. Sometimes with trauma, all it is is just a voice in the back of the head. You're going to get hurt. Don't do this. Avoid that. Run away. And so on and so on. So that's kind of the second piece that I wanted to also lay out that, you know, for this individual, safety is always questioned. And then my third piece around that is that institutions are made out of people. Service providers are people themselves too, right? So... If we're trying to approach somebody that at the core doesn't have that fundamental base of safety and or a sense of belonging and or a sense of even being seen or validated as a human being, you know, we got to understand that, right? And this is where, again, that peers will live experience come into play very strongly in this space because they understand that, right? So I would, again, encourage kind of the reflective processes for these service providers to really rethink the biases they're bringing into the table that can be either conducive to healing or, you know, making the trauma reoccur and or continuing that trauma status quo and they're putting messages either verbally and non-verbally of anything that is associated to the individual not belonging here, to the individual being unaccepted and or you know, being a judge for how they've been surviving the trauma throughout their lives.
0: Thinking about how challenging it can be for someone who's experienced trauma and how common that is that someone has experienced trauma and is struggling or suffering, what can we do to move in this direction where we feel this mutual responsibility and care for one another and how what do we do when we encounter folks who are suffering?
4: The first step is always awareness you know and I think that there's a, a, a step for everybody to be educated in is that let's start being really really I mean hyper aware of our own beliefs and biases as we confront people or as we come across individuals that are unhoused. I really want to Encourage people to get educated and to learn that the intersection between unhoused, trauma, mental health, and substance misuse is real. And it's not an isolated event, that everything's interconnected. And just as this individual figured out ways of surviving, so has the individuals coming across from them. So that would be my, my first kind of getting into the deep with your own reactions and biases towards unhoused individuals. The the second piece is that, you know, every organization has a piece of the puzzle. Every individual has a piece of the puzzle. And we got to kind of figure out how those puzzles, pieces of the puzzles fit together. Not one organization can do everything and not one organization can represent the it, right, of serving individuals. So in terms of sharing that responsibility, we got to make sure that There are more than one pathway to recovery.
2: What are the barriers that prevent, you know, clients, folks that you've seen, you support, um, get into stable housing?
4: There's just straight economic barriers. There's not enough affordable housing. Wages, you know, minimum wage, is not enough to hold down an apartment. There are kind of those policy things in place, you know, track record of eviction and felonies make it even more difficult to get into housing. And really, there's also a trust piece there, right? Because even if we provide housing, and again, through a lot of my work, you know, that transition is difficult, you know, going from surviving the streets to having a home. So if that is not addressed and or doesn't feel safe, the same ways of surviving will come up again, right? So there's a couple of pieces in in there too, in terms of how do we even keep individuals housed, right? Again, there's a whole spectrum of, of the unhoused. And we tend to just see and pay attention to the individuals that are on the streets. They're, you know, crossing our paths a lot. But there's not enough conversation about retention there's not enough conversation about, you know, prevention. You know, there's a lot of individuals at the borderline of being one paycheck away from being in the street, essentially, right? So there's the whole spectrum that I think we really need to start looking more into. And if we want to put solutions or monies, it will be that comprehensive spectrum to make sure that no matter what point of homelessness this individual is touching, that we're able to respond appropriately appropriately. With a cultural trauma lens and linguistically in a way that makes sense i was just gonna talk a little bit more about kind of the childhood adverse experiences mostly because as we were talking about trauma and then the after effects right as it relates to what we see in terms of like individuals being in house and, and homeless because we tend to be just stuck in the moment we, get, we don't see the track record from there right so from the adverse childhood experiences, I mean, if the trauma happens very, very early on, there are exponentially high chances for this individual to experience kind of the mental health challenges as well as the substance misuse. If an adolescent gets to experience trauma, there's a four, four times more likelihood of them being involved in substances for coping of that trauma. And when trauma happens early, early on, I mean, it literally changes the brain. So at the end of the day, if there's a message out there, like we got to take care of our littles because it is our littles who will become one day adults. And in these adults, we want them to have the best chance in life.
2: Are you hopeful about the future of this work?
4: I am. Again, I think I... Just like with any any individual, there are days where I feel defeated, and there's days where I feel very, very hopeful. I think there will be always hope for the future.
3: Juan, we are so appreciative of the perspective and the wisdom that you shared. And we also want to thank our episode sponsor, Mead and Hunt. They're a national full-service architectural and engineering firm that have been serving clients for well over a century. They're committed to shaping the future by putting people first and embracing innovation to meet the evolving needs of their clients, employees, and communities. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jana Flood. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by House of Pod. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.